welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, we have Shimmy LaRue. Together, we have a meaningful conversation about where we are at a year after George Floyd's murder. We also talk about change and how difficult that can be and rewarding and her journey to becoming the person that she is today. There's a lot of gold in this conversation that is so applicable to understanding and thriving in life. So tune in, everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply to meet you. You too. Is there anything specifically that's been on your heart lately that you want to talk about? Yes. Yeah, tell me. So I am a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. We are now coming up on the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. I am ready to start calling folks out. Like, it's been a year. What are you doing now? I work with a lot of corporate clients, a lot of tech companies, a lot of folks who were putting out all sorts of statements last year. And frankly, I'm looking around, looking at stuff, and I'm like, you know, y'all haven't done your homework. You haven't done your homework. So yeah, that's something I'd be interested in talking about. (laughs) Can you tell me more? I mean, I'm I want to know. I'm ready to record whenever. This is all good. You're already going for it. So yes, please tell me more. Last year, in particular, especially being a Black queer woman who is a <laughs> DEI consultant, I was good pickings for a lot of companies. I was re- It was really great to reach out to someone who looks like me to bolster their diversity efforts, however those <laughs> were. I had a lot of conversations where folks would want to do intro calls uh, and try to pick my brain and I'm doing all of this in in air quotes here you know try to pick my brain for 30 minutes or so without doing any actual work Mm. you know they've talked about having a listening circle or a listening session and they may have done a book club where they read usually white fragility or how how to be an anti-racist are usually the two top ones that people read Um, a lot of people were trying to do unconscious bias training in particular and Mm -hmm. to do anti-racism or allyship skills training usually with the goal of getting some sort of like here's my allyship badge or whatever when you would start to dig a little deeper and ask questions like why are you doing this now as opposed to six months ago a a lot of kind of shame facism was like well we really didn't think about it Mm -hmm. and it's like okay well but then also What is this going to look like six months from now? And especially members from marginalized groups who are part of your company and you're part of your organization 
are going to be skeptical. They're going to think that you're pretty much full of shit. A year later, they were right. They were absolutely because there hasn't been an increase in hiring for for diverse groups. There hasn't been an increase in actually moving the needle when it comes to inclusion. There hasn't been any sort of lift when talking about any of the big three when it comes to diversity. And the big three are race, gender, and orientation. There certainly has not been any movement for for anything for you know um, folks who are neuroatypical, folks who are older, folks who have disabilities. Like there's been no movement there, mm-hmm. and so here we are again, a year later, and I fully expect people to come out again with, "We remember, we're so sorry," and not have anything to really show. So it's been. It's been interesting and it's been kind of frustrating to know that members of marginalized communities were absolutely right. And the only thing that I I will say that I have seen an increase of is grifters. Get a little certification somewhere, go go somewhere, get like a couple of weeks certification. And then all of a sudden they too are now DEI consultants. Mm. And all of a sudden, they they too are now charging hundreds and thousands of dollars, and not and people who have the background, who have the experience, who have the lived experience, mm. are being sidelined, frankly, by a lot of white folks who are coming in, who are like, I read three books and took a three week seminar from somewhere, and now I'm right. a consultant. I think that's probably what's making me the most angry is that mm-hmm. there is now the commodification and the people found out that there was money to be made in DEI. Yeah. And so they're out here chasing the money. Yeah. 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 <laughs> There's a lot to that conversation. And of course, I want to recognize that I'm a white person existing in this world. And I don't know the best way to have this conversation with you other than speaking with my heart and call me out whenever I mess up, please. You know, um, yeah, I come from a very racist background, to be extremely frank. I come from a Christian background. I come from a lot of that that I'm still trying to acknowledge every single day. And so I'm not perfect in any way, but I welcome calling me out, please, because I, uh, otherwise, I don't know how else to have this conversation with you. And just, I, I don't want to gloss over what you're saying, you know what I mean? And just like drag this into some other way. And I I didn't expect this to be what we talk about today because of, from what I see outside, burlesque dancer, I was like, oh, we're going to talk about burlesque. But like, I am so down to have this conversation and talk about this and what can we do? What can we raise awareness for? And Absolutely. I mean, we absolutely can talk about burlesque too. I, I think they intersect. So that one, com- one conversation definitely leads into the other. Yes, yes. And I I mean, you. what have you seen that companies have done? Like, how are they? Re- is it just like completely dropping off? Like, where, where, what are the things you're seeing? It's starting to move into two camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have one camp where you have companies who really are trying to do the messy work. Um mm-hmm with some mixed results, but that's, that's fine. But you are starting to see like some companies who really are like, you have councils, you have actual changes in policy, you Mm -hmm. have actual awareness of what's going on. So you have that. And frankly, that's where I would have 
hoped companies would be a year from now. Most certainly not perfect, taking baby steps, but taking honest to goodness baby steps, tying metrics into uh, corporate bonuses, you know, actually changing your hiring processes, actually bringing right. in folks who will make you slightly uncomfortable. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm seeing that and I, I applaud organizations and companies who are doing that. I absolutely do. The other camp, there's a lot of silence mm-hmm. and a lot of just kind of, we're really hoping that no one says anything else. Yeah. Like we're really hoping that no one kind of checks up on us to make sure we've mm-hmm. actually done anything or not. So yeah, so that's that's the other camp. <laughs> And how do we combat this system? How do we change it? What can we do? Um, well, I think the very first thing is to be very honest. To be very honest with yourself, be honest with your organization, be honest with your motivations. Uh, one thing that I would want companies to say is just to be honest. Like For some companies, just say you don't care. Say you don't care and it is not important to you. Understand that there will be fallout from that. But it's better for you to be honest and for you to say that is not top of mind for you than for you to mealy mouth and go, sure, it's important that we treat everyone with respect and equally. Yeah. Just say it's not top of mind. It's fine. And then deal with whatever happens from that. So that requires actually honesty and bravery. I think after that, I think we have to acknowledge that it's a system and we're all part of this system, especially to white people. Stop fucking making it about you. Yes. Stop making it about you, about your feelings and how you feel bad. And my parents didn't have slaves or I didn't own slaves or I always treat people. Who cares? Right. What are you doing to destroy the system? We're all a part of it. We're all either being benefited by the system or punished by the system. What are mm-hmm. you doing to break the system? That's for me, that's where the anarchy comes in. Yep. Fuck fuck the fuck the interpersonal racism. Yes, it's absolutely there. It is. But people mm-hmm. are trash. But fuck the interpersonal racism. What are you doing to break the system? Right. And so I think that it it requires bravery. I think it requires vulnerability. I think it requires not making it about you. And it requires understanding where everybody sits within the system. This is all one Mm -hmm. big play. This is all one big game. We are all players in this game. Where do you fit in and what are you going to do about it? The first thing you ask people to do of being honest, especially companies, I don't know if that will ever happen. Like, realistically, that's not going to, that, I mean, that's not, companies are not paid to be honest. They are paid to acquire people to buy their products. And that is why they will continue to have reckonings because, and I, and I will say, I love where we are right now as like a country. Mm-hmm. Whereas a company will not be honest, their employees will make them honest. And, you know, people talk a lot about cancel culture. People talk a lot. And frankly, 
I don't actually believe in cancel culture because I don't think anyone actually gets canceled. Mm-hmm. I think what happens is accountability. And then you either are held accountable and do the right thing or you don't. But no right. one ever gets canceled. No, no one ever right. gets punished so hard that they go away. They just shut up for mm-hmm. a while and come back. Right. But if, if a company is not going to be honest and sometimes and on a corporate level, that honesty, and I've been incredibly fortunate to work with some clients who have, who have said this for a company, sometimes honesty is, I don't know what to do mm. and I don't know how to start. That is honesty. And that is incredibly powerful and saying you don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, a former life, I was a product manager. So I, I built products mm. for, for companies. We used to say all the time, and companies would say all the time, that they're not sure what the gap is in the market or they're trying to find a, a place in the market where they fit in. Why not do the same thing for diversity? You don't know all the answers. So go fucking find out. Right. I read a beautiful quote today that was talking about how coming in and embracing that diversity is where you can find the empathy and that requires you acknowledging that you don't know the lived experience of other people and that's how you get empathy is first acknowledge that i don't know what it's like to live in any other human's body let alone a marginalized group that i have never lived in yes 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 (sighs) and that is the kind of honesty i want people to have that was Sonia Renee Taylor. The body is not an apology. I was reading that this morning on the train. I was trying to remember. And yeah, it's, but that's not where we start. And no one is starting. Well, people are, but like, how do people start there? It, I actually, I don't know. I, th- I think I'm actually going to push back against that. I think that actually push is it. where people start. You start mm-hmm. with, I don't know what I don't know. I guess I mean, so many people won't even question themselves of that. And I guess maybe that's not who we're even talking to on this podcast, right? Like, I don't imagine those people are here. But I, and I, but I, I also think, like I said before, I, I think that if a company is not organically, and by company, I mean organization, because that could be nonprofit, mm-hmm. whatever. If an organization doesn't do that organically, I am grateful for the gift of somebody being a rabble rouser. I am yes. grateful for the gift of someone calling them out and challenging them to look mm-hmm. at themselves. Right. So I don't, I don't think, I never think it's a problem when someone calls someone out or puts someone on blast or anything. Frankly, I think mm-hmm. it's a gift. I think it gives yeah. you the opportunity to really look at yourself mm-hmm. in a way that you weren't doing it before. Right. So it's at that point, then you can say, well, shit, I actually don't know. And therein lies where the growth and healing starts. Right. And if you don't make it a pity party and put yourself down and say, now I'm horrible and don't actually do the changing work. Exactly. And like I said, it's not fucking about you. Oh, and and you're absolutely right. So many people spiral at that point when they've been called out. Mm -hmm. They spiral into that shame into that guilt into that oh no I'm a terrible person stop internalizing it what they're saying is that your actions aren't okay fix your actions right exactly staying in pity it doesn't solve the problem I understand why you would want to keep 
eating away at yourself because it's easier. It is easier to stay in the narrative that I don't know what I how to handle this than to actually do the work. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's where it's like we're, we're talking about the different groups of where people are at in this like continual work journey. Anyone who says that they have it figured out scares me. Mm-hmm. Like, who, how could you have the whole experience and knowledge of so many different marginalized and minority groups? I can't even begin to have that as my headspace. No, no. Like, even even as a DEI professional, I am still actively learning new things and actively seeing where my own blind spots are mm-hmm. and actively being called in and called out by my own, by other communities of, hey, you aren't talking about this. Mm-hmm. or like exactly. where how are you introducing this concept because i i'm in i'm in this body so those right. are the experiences that i focus through but other folks who are not in that body if i'm gonna say that i'm someone who really is focused on inclusion mm-hmm. i've actually got to be inclusive i have to practice what i preach and if there are moments where i'm not i'm not getting it i'm not at a hundred percent I've got to be vulnerable enough too to be like, you're right. I have more to learn. And doing that takes a lot of self-love and self-compassion. And those are immense strengths that, you know, doing this work requires. It is so difficult to take that someone telling you that you've messed up and to actually move through it and flow through growth of that. That takes, you have to be kind to yourself and acknowledge it's, it's, it's not this black and white thing. And I think that's, what's hard about it is to recognize that, yes, I failed. And yes, there's still capacity for more. Yes. And holding both of those weights at the same time is hard. And some people, I think, then pick one, like, oh, I'm going to be better. I'm so much better. Now I know everything. Check, check, check. Or I don't know anything and go down the other camp versus holding those concepts together at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And this this actually does tie into burlesque. It, it ties into burlesque quite a bit because burlesque has the patina of being inclusive. What does that mean? I don't know. So patina? Yes, the, the kind of outward sheen, the kind of the, the crispy outer shell of being mm. inclusive. You'll hear people talk about how burlesque is body positive. You'll hear about how burlesque is for all bodies. And it's that's what you'll hear. Mm. However, what you see are a lot of cis, straight, thin, white bodies on stage. You don't actually see bodies that look like mine i'm i'm not i'm not a size two but i'm also not plus size i learned recently where it's called being mid-sized learned mm-hmm. that recently i was like mid-sized i don't like that so it's like i'm a mid-sized performer i am dark-skinned mm-hmm. you don't normally see bodies like mine on stage i've been incredibly pro- fortunate that in chicago i have a, i have a wonderful burlesque career here i have been yeah. incredibly fortunate to be a performer an active working performer in this city but more broadly, you don't see larger bodies on stage. You don't see outwardly queer bodies on stage. You don't see darker skinned bodies on stage. And if you do, it's almost like Highlander. There could only be one. <laughs> right. Or disabled bodies on stage. And and folk and folks and producers would try to couch it under 
well, you know, it's not what the audience really wants or, or we want to we want to kind of speak to the audience. The audience wants what you give them and the audience will know what sexiness is and what desirability is based on what you put out on that stage to say, we think this is desirable and we right. think you all you will, too. But to do that requires a form of anarchy, right? Like I'm going to stand against what the culture says and stand and um, produce what I think is beautiful, acknowledging the fact that that it's not going to cast such a wide net. I don't, I, I'm thinking of porn that I actually had found that was very queer uh, based in a very frank dialogue so much when I understand and grow as a person of my sexual interest in other people is inherently shaped by the larger systems that are around me. And like, I want to be the person that finds that attractive, but I struggle because society has taught me this. And like, it's, I don't even know how do you begin to crack that code? Because if you tell people to put on a show with those bodies, people who are even trying to do the work might say, I'm not attracted to this. Right. But like pulling apart the layers of what has created what is sexy to me personally, it's internalized. Just like. Absolutely. I think, and I, and I don't necessarily have data. So it is semi-anecdotal and stuff I have read years ago. So I, I don't I don't I don't want to say that I have like data behind this, but what we what we have perceived as sexy is not what we actually find sexy. Oh, tell me more, please. So when you do like actual searches of what people look up at porn, when Mm -hmm. you look at things like dating sites. What we are told are like European standards of beauty isn't always what we're actually attracted to. If that were the case, BBW sites wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. If that were really the case, ebony sites wouldn't exist. And and not in the sake of of being a fetish. Not in, not and yes, there's always fetishes, right. but not not in the sake of being a fetish, but I think that sometimes we are too afraid of being honest about mm-hmm. what is actually desirable. Because we we all feel like we have to fit into what we all think is the standard of beauty. When in fact, mm-hmm. when we go home, we're actually getting off to things that are not that standard at all. Mm. You know, it, we're we're getting off to real bodies. We're getting mm-hmm. off to curves. We're getting off to bodies that might look slightly different maybe maybe we're getting off to more androgynous looking bodies we're not Mm -hmm. getting off to models even though we're that we're told that's what we're supposed to like so i say that there's honesty and bravery in saying we know good and well that you're actually not super into just skinny skinny folks all the time (laughs) we know you aren't so we're going to put some of the bodies we know you're actually interested in on stage I want to have a very real conversation with you, but I'm afraid to talk about this stuff on the podcast. So I'm just like, what do I say? But in true honesty of my own podcast, I should talk about it um, and what I believe in. I want to hear what you're saying. And I don't know if this is my own issues with body image and like the culture I was raised in, but I do not find larger bodies attractive. And I am like, I've internalized a level of that. So like what you were talking about is the person who does have this interest and is not open about it but like 
my perspective for so many years has been shaped. And I think a lot of people do the same thing where they're like, oh, I'm not attracted to this race. And like, have you ever really examined where that comes from? What notions of beauty have you been listening to? Because they would say innately, like, no, it's just my preference. And I would say, no, it's the larger societal structure. The reason why I don't find larger bodies attractive is because media has told me they aren't for years. And I still have to unlearn that. But how do you unlearn that? I don't, I don't. You unlearn it by exposure therapy. That's what I've been doing. (laughs) Unlearn it by seeing really hot bodies that are not what you normally would be into. And then you see them and you're like, well, shit, I think I need to, I need to work on my own unconscious biases and work on what that actually means. And ultimately the answer may ultimately be that is not your preference. Sure. But you right. but you've examined it, you've seen bodies that that you're into, and then you're like, but it's ultimately not for me. And that is okay. That is absolutely okay. Right. But you've you've at least had the chance to explore it. And but I think that it is important for producers and for the burlesque industry to at mm-hmm. least give people the opportunity to explore it. Yes. Yes. I deeply agree with that. That would be a beautiful place. And especially because there is such a magical, I don't I don't know what the words are, but something real that is inherently different when it's a human on the stage compared to seeing these bodies in media or other forms of film. There's just a magical, I don't know, energy, woo-woo, whatever you want to call it, of seeing that person take up real, actual four-dimensional space in front of yes. you. Yes, and that, that to me is the sexiest thing yes that i i care a little bit less about what your body looks like than Mm -hmm. i am about how can you control a room can you Mm -hmm. wrap everyone around your fingers can you make me hold my breath when you're performing can you make me aroused when you're performing Mm -hmm. can you do those things and i'm not I care a little bit less about what body that is in. I've seen some performers that are stick thin, absolute model, pinup folks who hit those points down the line. I've also Mm -hmm. seen people who are considered traditionally beautiful that I swear to God, I go to sleep every time they perform. Mm, Yes. Yeah. Because yes, they're traditionally beautiful, but they're boring as fuck. And I'm not. I'm not into it. I'd I'd rather see someone with a little bit of a gut. I'd rather see yep. somebody with, with maybe a back roll or two, maybe a little cellulite, maybe a little jiggle in the wiggle. That when they're on stage, I'm just like, let me just throw these panties on stage right now. Exactly. And I think that's ultimately explaining sexuality and sexual interest. Like, you know... I'm also pansexual, queer, whatever you want to call me, but I've attracted to anyone who takes up that space like that. It is an energy and it's undeniable how we're attracted to people who own their space and take it. And that's, yeah, that's a beautiful thing that cannot happen in any other medium like film or all the other things we've been talking about. Porn where you don't get that connection and like, wow, then what a space is burlesque when you think about it in that I'm of like grander ways to change people's view of the world and what's sexy and beautiful. And it then becomes a very powerful medium. Absolutely. And that that is why I love burlesque. 
That is why yeah. I love it. Because I, I love being able to go into a space. And yes, burlesque there, it is actually, it is absolutely transactional. So that, and there, that's a whole other conversation we can have. It's absolutely transactional. But right. I love going into a space and watching people watch a show. And watching people have awakenings as they're watching the show. And they're like, oh my God, that was hot. Or, oh my God, that was hilarious. Or, that was really weird. I don't I don't know what I just saw. I think I like it. But that was yeah. fucking weird. Like, right. I, for me, like, that's, those are the moments that I'm like, yes. Yeah. And as a performer, if I can give those moments to the audience, then I have done my job as a performer. Yes. And I think what you're talking about is something very magical in the sense that you're awakening something in them that is visceral frequently to bring these ideas to people. We use words, we use argument, you know, rational arguments, whatever. But there is something so different about the fact of sitting in a chair and having some sort of interest you've never felt before peek into your body and then you need to process that. Mm -hmm. You feel that. Like, that's so powerful. Exactly. Exactly. And it, and it doesn't have to be sexy all the time. I, I, do, I do a twirling act where it's literally three and a half minutes of tassel twirls. Well, it's about two minutes mm. of tassel twirls. And I do all sorts of twirls. And I love doing that act because every time I do that act, I get at least one person who was like, bitch, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> Shit, how do you turn those things on your tits? How do you do that? <laughs> I don't know. Like, truly, it's magical. Cool. I'm like, it's practice and wig tape is what it is. <laughs> it's great. Wow. How long is that act? It's it's literally three minutes. It's It is... It's nothing but cardio for like three minutes. It's it's ridiculous. Wow. And by the way, wow. tip and twirling tassels is in your shoulders, not your boobs. Really? Like the throw forward? So it's it's in okay. the shoulders, not in the boobs. If you have a place on your chest to attach a pasty, you can twirl a tassel. <laughs> Interesting. I thought it was always related to breast size, which is probably just totally a myth. Not at all. Not at all. Amazing. It is harder if you have large breasts. It's a little harder. But I... I've taught men to twirl tassels. I've taught folks with small chests, large chests. It really is in the shoulders. And it's in the shoulders right. and in the knees, depending on how you twirl. It has nothing to do with breast tissue. Interesting. And so you said specifically that it's not always sexy and then related to this act. What is your intention out of this sort of act then? Oh, it's absolutely ridiculous. That, that's the point. <laughs> it, the act itself is goofy. It's ridiculous. And the entire right. aim of the act is literally, look at the weird things I can do with my tits. That is the act. <laughs> exactly. And then humor is such a way to subvert culture. Like, who gets on stage and say, this is what I'm going to do, and you're going to watch it, and this is it, and it's amusing. Like, yeah, that's taking up space for, uh, you know, rejection of mainstream professionalism, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And And that's, you know... Part of the history of burlesque is satire and parody right. and being subversive. And I think we sometimes lose that in the pursuit of being ultra sexy all the time. I think that it serves us well to get back into the subversive nature of burlesque and to really turn 
concepts on their head. What does it mean to be sexy? What does it mean to be funny? What does it mean to take up space? I mean, I, I have another act where I literally stand in place and remove my clothes. That's the mm-hmm. act. I I just stand in place and it's like a four minute song and I literally just stand in place and wow. all I do is take off my clothes. Wow. I'm envisioning it. It sounds empowering. Oh, it is. And it's terrifying. Every time I do the act, I am scared shitless every single time I do the act. But that's the subversion for me. As mm-hmm. a performer, how do I how do I get past the incredible fear that I have that I would never I would not do that as my non-performer self. Yeah. But I'm challenging and subverting the idea of what is movement, what is dance, what is putting on a performance. It's like, no, I'm just going to stand here and take my clothes off. What do you feel like you're afraid of in those moments before you go on for that act? Um, I am afraid of being judged for my body. Mm. I am afraid of being disrespected. I am afraid that I can't do it. Mm. And those are the fears that I have literally every single time I do the act. But I will continue to do that act until it no longer serves me. But I will continue to do it and I will continue to be afraid every single time I do the act. So tell me in those moments when you feel that, what do you say to yourself? How do you get to the stage and stand there? Uh, there is a little bit of bravado. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite things to say is my presence is the gift reminding myself that you know what these people paid money to see this show they got in their cars or paid for car service uber lyft whatever they've purchased drinks maybe food all in an effort to see the show you need to uphold your half of the contract their half of the contract was doing all of those things to come see the show your half of the contract is to give them something that is worth all of the effort that they've just spent. Mm-hmm. And so when I was talking about burlesque being transactional, that's what I mean. They've done all of that mm-hmm. to come here to see you. So your half of the transaction is to give them something worthy of that. Exactly. And I want to push you even further because you're clearly giving them something very valuable. And people write beautiful reviews about you. I was looking at your website before uh, just to do a little work. Um, And so clearly, I want to say, if you have these fears at the beginning, you put them somewhere to be giving something that's so valuable and people keep coming to you time after time. How do you hold space for both of those feelings? You just have to sit in it. You just have to sit in Mm -hmm. it. And to know that that fear... That fear drives the passion. That fear drives the performance. That yes, I might be absolutely terrified, but I know I know my skill and my worth as a performer. I know yes. what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. I'm yes. here in this moment with them. And as they give me energy, that helps soothe my fear. And then I can give it back out to them. And then it becomes mm-hmm. a cycle that we're both, we're both engaging in this together. And in that four moments, we are all in this together. 
Mm-hmm. And so that that's what helps kind of tamp down the fear. And that's what kind of helps with that is that knowing that they're giving me that energy as I give it back out to them. Even if it's mm-hmm. some bro sitting in the front seat who looks kind of bored or whatever, at that point, I'm like, oh, well, now I'm just going to entertain you, sir. That's a beautiful thing. It feels very selfless in this you give energy I give it back and together we dance and play and take up space to enjoy the present moment I don't I don't know if I would call myself that level of selfless I think sometimes it becomes pretty selfish for me because I crave that energy yes like being on stage is a type of energy and vibe I can't get anywhere else you know, I, I joke all the time. It's like people take pay me to take my clothes off in public. This is fucking dope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, this is great. But I crave that energy. And so getting mm-hmm. it from that audience, I'm like, yeah, give me more of it. Give me more of it. And so to get more of it, I got to give. Yeah, I mean, sure. It's selfless, but it's also selfish. <laughs> For sure. What does that space feel like? What it, or I guess you use the word energy. So how would you describe that energy? It's, it is absolutely intoxicating. It's intoxicating. Like you, you do have a post-show high. You absolutely do. Where it just, it just feels right. Yeah, it it just feels right. And then, you know, you, you work your way down from it, you know, usually by that time you're at home and taking off your makeup and looking for something random to eat in the fridge. And, you know, that's how you're kind of working yourself back down from it. And you're like, Yeah. yeah, I could do that again. Exactly. It's almost, well, I guess, okay, so I've only done burlesque once. I did one show. And I'm trying to think about what you're saying and how I felt afterwards, too. And it almost kind of felt like a roller coaster. Yeah. And once you go down that first drop, you're like, wait, I did that? That was fun? Oh, what other fears can I confront and actually have fun, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I I think that's a great way of describing it. I mean, it is like a roller coaster. Yeah. And so, like, and But I love that you openly are talking about the fact that the fear is present every time. I, that's a beautiful vulnerability for other people. Because I think what you're talking about very much so relates to larger aspects of life and confronting times where we take up space when we're afraid about how that will be received by others, you know, the crowd, whatever, whatnot, and learning to hold space for the fear and the self-love and still taking that leap and riding the roller coaster down and seeing how it feels. Absolutely. You're speaking to truth that I think so many people could like take away and implement into their life of holding both of those. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I, without a doubt, I, I know that being a burlesque performer has made me better in other parts of my life. Please tell me more. Um, it, it has made me, bolder it has made me scrappier mm-hmm. and scrappier meaning because most burlesque performers and i and i'm i am an independent performer so i'm not with a troupe or anything so that means that i have to book all of my own gigs i either make all of my own costumes or have them made for me um i have an amazing amazing costumer yeah serena's amazing I, so i have to book all of my own gigs I have to do all of my own costuming. I have to do all of my own travel. I'm mixing down my own music. I'm, I'm, I'm getting myself to and from shows. Like I have to do all of these things myself. Promo, mm-hmm. like all of that stuff. 
Yeah. I'm doing it. So it makes me scrappy, which ironically, and, and I, I hope I feel like I'm not like hopping all over the, the place, but I feel like in, in my head, they all connect. This is all great content. Anything about the human psyche in life is great content. Please keep going. <laughs> okay, cool. So an- another connection that I, I love making, and it's one that frankly pisses off the bros, so it makes me happy. Being a burlesque performer is better than being at a startup. Because being a burlesque performer, you literally have to do everything. You get feedback instantly. You know what to change and update literally within seconds of you finishing your performance. You have, you're trying to make, you know, a thousand dollar look with $10.57. So you know how to budget, you know how to how to stretch a dollar, you know how to take an idea from nothing and make it into something. Frankly, startups could really uh, spend some time looking at how burlesque performers operate to learn how to be better startups. Certainly. Everything you're talking about are the skills to run a company. So which makes me want to say, how did you get here? to be able to run all this. (laughs) I mean, that's a lot. I mean, clearly you're right. Tech, it would learn lessons from you. How did you get here? You're a very strong and clearly intelligent woman. Tell me. (laughs) Um, So I, I grew up actually pretty religious. I grew up very religious. Um, Grew up in Texas to a Caribbean household. Yeah. Grew up soups religious. Had assemblies of God. Like, I don't know if you remember the uh, documentary Jesus camp. I, yes, I actually just watched a video on it very recently. Yep. Those are the kinds of summer camps I went to. Same. Yeah, I feel that. The Buttercup Jesus, or uh, the Lifesaver shirt with Jesus Saves. Did you? <laughs> These big fat t-shirts you could buy in the summer camps of Christian camps. Yes, yes. Listen to nothing but Christian radio, taught vacation uh. Bible school. I was, we were in the Assemblies of God churches. So I was a missionette growing up because we didn't wow. do Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts. So it was missionettes and Royal Rangers. So yeah, grew up hardcore religious. Had a religious break at 17. And that religious break came with actually reading the Bible cover to cover. I was like, oh, this doesn't match. This doesn't match what I'm seeing. Oh no. Oh no. So had a religious break. But I will say that one thing that I did keep from growing up religious and growing up with Caribbean parents was a stubborn work ethic. I just refuse to not learn and not know how to do something. I just fucking refuse. I will figure it the fuck out. I don't know if that's always healthy. I don't know. My therapist and I talk about it. I don't know if it's always healthy, but I'm going to figure it the fuck out. Due to that, I've I've been able to be in tech and work in tech for a number of years, moved over to D&I, became a burlesque performer, hustled my ass off. And wow. now, you know, I own my own company for DEI. Hell yeah. Um, I was a traveling performer before the old pandemic. And now, now that things are starting to open back up, who knows what that looks like now? I'm not going right. to say because I don't know quite yet. Yeah. It, the very, the 50 cent tour version of what I spent the long way around to say was I'm stubborn. Mm. <laughs> I'm just stubborn. <laughs> what do you think it was about the faith that led to you being stubborn? It was the concept of work. And, and I and again it wasn't mm. just it wasn't just the 
it wasn't just the religion. It was also growing up with my folks. You know, my dad used to always say, you can buy pretty, but you have to work for smart. Mm. And so I really took those things to heart. So it was like, okay, go do the work. Right. And you clearly have a very inquisitive brain because I would say not many people pick up the faith and then don't read the whole Bible front to front. Clearly there was something in you that wanted to seek out these answers. So there a strong person in there just wants to know the truth. And then when you didn't find it, you're like, damn, I got to go find it out here now. And you live your life from that sort of like, I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to find the answers. I mean, granted, some things are unknowable and how we accept those things still working that don't know. (laughs) But (laughs) all the other things you're going to figure out. Right. And and I, I will say that with age, I have become much more comfortable with not knowing things. Yeah, I the the me of 15 years ago, 10 years ago would not nearly as been comfortable with it. But the me now, like I would consider myself an agnostic. I, I think that there are a lot of the mm-hmm. same stories and what they all mean at the end. I don't know, but I know that we all have right. a lot of the same stories. So there has right. to be some fundamental truth out of that. Cause why we all say the same things in different ways. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I try to explain that to people that being an atheist requires just as much faith as being a believer. Uh, truly there's, I mean, no scientific empirical evidence for either to which I say, I don't know. I'm agnostic. <laughs> and like, yeah, we're not really sure. And I recognize that, but you said that you've come to this in the last 15 years. I would say not even 15 years. I'd say maybe 10. What has happened in the last 10 years that you feel like has like unlocked this for you? <laughs> I, I just, I just grew up enough, enough things happened in life in general, you know, mm-hmm. moving to another city, getting in relationships, new jobs, just living in this body. At some point, you just have to let go of the feeling that you have to know everything because that shit is stressful. <laughs> yes, certainly. I guess I just want to say that that's a strength. And so many people don't even push themselves to get to that point. Some people see that and then they still try to control all of their lives. So even though you say it's just you grew up, I would want to say you probably have been doing a lot of internal work that I want to see and validate, you know? And there and there's still a lot more to do. There's so, you know, ask, ask my friends there, they'll tell you, uh, yeah, Shibby still is <laughs> She's a little hardcore, but and I'll and I'll openly admit there is so much more work to do. But I am proud that I am much better than what than where I was maybe ten years ago. Exactly. I think I always want to like mirror to people that I hope we don't get lost in the trees of like how hard mental health work can be. To just it's a constant battle. But like when you take a step back and look at yeah, where did I? How did I get here? Like. That's a lot of work. We've constantly been doing little by little every day with ourselves and our brain. And so just, I don't know, sometimes I like to take the space in this podcast that I get to have and tell people how awesome they are. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. appreciate that. Of course. I know we talked about a lot on this podcast, but one of the things I ask everyone who comes on is what is one thing that you wish other people understood was more normal? I wish people knew that it was more normal to not know what the fuck you're doing. Mm. 
I think that we all have, and I'm, I'm just as guilty of this. I think that we all have put out this view that we're, we're balling, we're, we're making moves, we're doing things, I'm going forth, like da, 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 da. I want people to normalize the fact that, yeah, most of us have no fucking clue what we're doing. Most of us don't. There, there might be moments and flashes but very few of us have a really good defined outward plan. And the more you have a plan, the more the universe is like, really, girl? Yes. Girl, really? Yes. <laughs> because I think acceptance of that is what allows you to move through the world. Exactly. Otherwise, you're just kind of like, I'm supposed to figure it out. Why don't I know? Why don't I know? Why don't I know what I want to do with my life professionally? Why do I not know what I want to do with this relationship? What my gender identity is? All these things. It's like... We're all just living into the answers every single day. Like, mm-hmm. no one knows. We're just here. No. And and sometimes you may figure it out later on. Other times oh. you may never figure it out. Or that yeah. answer may change. Like, I'm, I'm trying to hold space for the me I am now may not be the me that I am five years from now. Yes, exactly. And And for that to be just as okay. Cause I don't, I don't fucking know what that is. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. And we can't. There's, there's no way to know until you know. I mean, I, I, I think that, yes, this is also not to say, you know, move about the world with no plan at all and just kind of oh, right. flip and flop around, but give yourself some damn grace. <laughs> give, give yourself yeah. grace that the plan you put in place didn't really work or that you want to do something else now or you want to go back and review something again like give yourself give yourself the grace to be able to change because we just don't know and be brave enough to choose the change and the uncomfortability that comes with that rather than staying stagnant where you're at exactly exactly i think that is such a universal thing that there is inherently comfort in staying where we're at but that does not mean there's health there no no i mean you think about it a stagnant pool of water does nothing but like breed mosquitoes exactly which inherently is life in some form so yeah if you just stay stagnant there will be life there i promise you will continue to live there will be algae and moss but i promise you there won't be human life so you gotta take that step and god that is something i am personally trying to work on every day because frequently i want to know the answers like should i break up with this person should i go on this like adventure career wise and it's like i don't i don't know Mm -hmm. i'm just gonna lean and i'm just it frequently feels almost like you're jumping out of a plane yes and trusting that I have the parachute in my mental health and love for myself to take care of myself and land wherever I need to. Yes. And that shit's scary. Like that shit's so scary. Absolutely. But if there if there wasn't fear, how do you know that it's worth doing? You don't at all. If you're not if you're not a little bit scared, then you're not stretching yourself far enough. You're not making any changes. You're not doing anything if you're still comfortable with everything that you're doing yes it's hard so many people have those cheesy quotes like yeah if you're comfortable you're not pushing yourself in that and it's like damn how do you get people to actually hear this and internalize it because 
I think that is so much of the answer to life, truly. How do you change your philosophical ideologies? You have to accept that you're in a stagnant pool of water right now and you need to lean and grow. And you don't know how that's going to happen. You don't know how long it's going to take, but you go that direction. And like, this is everything, like right here. <laughs> I get a little woo-woo sometimes about my metaphors. But... Oh, no, 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 not at all. No, that, that's perfect. <laughs> and, and it's true. I, it's, you know, I... I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I think that there's just something really, really beautiful about not knowing what's going to happen next. Had we had this conversation 10 years ago, I most certainly wouldn't have said that. Mm, yeah. But I do think that there's something really, really beautiful about just kind of seeing what the universe has in store for you. Yeah, I've been writing about this in my own uh, writing about like, yeah, the beauty is in the randomness and the inherent chance of what you're going to find. If we had the same, I mean, think about it in even simpler sense. If you had a meal every single day, I promise you, you're going to get sick of that meal. And so much of life is just acknowledging that like the beauty is in the unpredictability. Yeah. And in that we find joy, but first have to acknowledge that it is inherent. Every time I end up talking about existentialism on this podcast and just Buddhism, all these concepts of like change is constant, please accept it and go out into the world. Like, yes. Yes. And some of those changes are going to <sighs> suck. Yes. That's also part of the process. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's what is good to focus on the reality that some of this is so hard and painful and sucks. But that's that's okay. Right. And it's a wave. We go down, we come back up and I, life is going to be full of different waves of different sizes and immensities. And they're going to take you to so many different places. So learn to swim. <laughs> like, let's get out there. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this has been so lovely. Is there anything else you want to say? Otherwise, I will cut it here and do a closing. Um, No, I think so. I think I I think that I took y'all through a weird journey in my mind so like <laughs> mapping all the things out there um but no i this was this was fantastic um i had a really I'm great so time and thank you so much for having me on today yeah it's been such a pleasure where can people find you i am on all of the socials at shimmy larue um my website is shimmy and mm -hmm. if you would like to find out the uh dei work that i do you can go to theprofessionaladult.com. Lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This was wonderful. If you enjoyed today's conversation, then subscribe for new episodes released every Wednesday. And follow us on Instagram at Modern Anarchy Podcast, where we open up a dialogue about all of these topics. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. And a special thanks to one of my favorite artists, Yura Smith, for the intro and outro song to this show.